Wow, my announcements turned into a sermon. All right, so, and now the message. All right, we are studying the book of Acts, and so if you have a Bible, please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 26. Verses 11 through 26. Now, we've been calling this series Authentic Church because we know that just like an individual's life can get thrown off, their rhythm can get thrown off, guess what? Entire churches, entire local churches can have their rhythms thrown off. Instead of pleasing Jesus, it is very easy for churches to become about pleasing people. Very, and man, and, and don't, you know... Before we knock the pastors that are doing it, they're being people pleasers and all that, we need to look at our own hearts. How much do we all lean towards being people pleasers? And so we always have to come back to Scripture and make sure that we are not becoming a people pleasing church. We want to bless people, don't get me wrong. What we're going to pick up on this morning is Peter's response to this crowd and their response to this miraculous healing. So we'll read the passage together as a whole, pray and get into our study this morning. Acts 3, 11 through 26, this is the word of God. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets, from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets. And of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
to you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask for your blessing now over the teaching of the word. Lord, we just pray that you would move among us in spirit, in truth, in power. Lord, I pray that you would overcome the stubbornness and rebellion that is in each and every one of us. Lord, we're thankful that if we've responded to Christ in faith, we've been forgiven. We thank you that through faith in Christ, you weaken the power of sin. And yet we acknowledge none of us are who we should be, nor who one day the scripture says we will be. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who has not received Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they have not placed faith in him. They have not understood that they have sinned against God, that they can't make themselves right, that only Jesus and his blood, what he has done for us, can ever make a sinner right with God. We just pray, Lord, that you would convict them in both holiness and love of what only you can do for them. Encourage us and that this message would change us this week and that our lives would be lived fully and completely for the glory of God. That people would naturally believe in God. They would naturally place faith in Christ. But you actually see in Scripture that's usually not true. Time and time again, when the apostles perform a miracle, they are immediately met with misunderstanding. Over and over, when people see a good deed, they tend to misinterpret it. And I think that's one thing that Christians have to understand, because we know that we are to be people who do good works. We do good deeds. We do good works. Yes, absolutely. But for many people, they've gotten this idea that all Christians need to do is do good works and say nothing. But the problem is, from the scriptures first, it's people's actions. It's been said that 93% of all communication is nonverbal. That's quite interesting, 93%. But there's a problem with nonverbal communication. It is subject to be misinterpreted very highly. I give the example of years ago, I worked for corporate America, I worked for uh, one of the largest banks in America, and I, I had a, an astigmatism, but I also had an aversion to wearing glasses, so I just wouldn't wear them. And I had this particular client who I would see every single week, and apparently, because the screen was like fluorescent blue, and then the numbers on people's accounts were white. It was just like, you know, very, very vivid and very bright. So I would kind of squint and do this to, to be able to see. And then doing that, you can imagine 10 hours a day, you kind of get a headache. And I remember this one particular client who I'd seen every day, and I'm, I'm always, you know, very chipper and joyful and, you know, uh, giving them good customer service. But I remember one day this client who I saw every week said, Mike, why are you so angry all the time? And, and I, I was shocked. I literally was like, I'm not. Actually, I'm normally not angry. Why, why in the world do you say that? They're like, oh, well, you, you have this scowl on your face. And I said, oh, 
You're right, I have a scowl. You're completely wrong in your interpretation. I'm actually not angry at all. As a matter of fact, you caught me at a good time. I'm pretty happy. But what you are seeing is I actually have an eye problem and it causes me to squint. And the person goes, oh, this whole time. I, I saw this nonverbal communication, but I've been misinterpreting it wrongly. The same thing happens with good works. You can bless somebody, you can give money out to somebody on the street who has their hand out, you can help somebody into uh, open a door for somebody at the store, you can go down uh, to a food bank and help pass out food. You can do all types of great social good, and yet if you never give the message of Jesus, you are allowing very likely a false interpretation of why and what you're doing to remain in place. And what I want to point out from the scriptures, and we'll do so continually as we study the book of Acts, is the apostles are keenly aware of our natural bias towards misunderstanding. And so what is about to happen is a sermon. This is Peter's second great sermon in the book of Acts, the second after his famous Pentecost sermon. And notice what it's in a response to. Misunderstanding. Now here it's implicit. Because it actually says, Peter in verse 12 says, When Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or, listen, why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? Notice what Peter's doing. He's correcting a perceived misunderstanding. What is happening is they've reached out. That's all people can see. And they've seen this man who couldn't walk. That's all they can see. And they lifted him up. That's all they could see. And so guess who got the glory and the credit initially? Peter and John. Peter and John did this. And one of the things you'll see the apostles do over and over again is anytime glory or praise is directed at them, they redirect it to God. And that's actually the basis of this sermon. A good deed was done. It drew a crowd but it elicited a misunderstanding, and a sermon is given to correct their false understanding. If you remember Pentecost, why did Peter give his sermon there? Anybody? Shout it out. This is a participatory service. Why did Peter preach his sermon on Pentecost? When the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, the 120 in the upper room, they began speaking in other tongues, and it was interpreted by some that they were drunk at nine in the morning. They misinterpreted the mighty act of God. And Peter stands up and his sermon was a correction of their misunderstanding. We have the same thing here. You will see it over and over and over in the book of Acts. One of the things Christians do is we don't just speak into a vacuum. We speak into a world of lies and error. It's full of it, everywhere. And we need to understand, we need to be perceptive of the wrong ideas about God and about Christ, about the church, about the gospel. We need to listen to people. We need to listen to culture. Not because we're going to obey it and do what everyone else is doing, but if we want to be good evangelists, guess what? You have to listen. You have to be keenly aware of why people are saying and doing what they're doing. And that is what Peter is doing here. So he begins this sermon by challenging and questioning the assumptions of the crowd and their interpretation of what happened to the lame man. 
first and foremost, you are mistaken. It is not us. It is not by our power or our godliness. Notice that. There's, there's two mistakes. Number one, that the power resides in them. They're like, no, the power is not in us. Secondly, they might go, okay, but here, this is kind of like a Christian nuance. It's an error we make, but it's a little bit nuanced. I get glory to God, but man, it was really through you. And it's this tendency to, in theory, acknowledge God is the giver of every gift, but there's still an unhealthy lashing on to gifted mm -hmm. people. This is where celebrity church culture in the church comes from. And again, I'm all for gifted people. I'm all for giving gifted people opportunities to serve and use their gift. And I'm absolutely against gifted people getting worshipped. Because it robs God of his glory, and it's actually bad for that person and the people they serve. And so we have to make sure our lives of ministry is always redirecting from us. It's going to happen. It's not your fault. If people say, wow, you're so amazing, you did this, you did that, and you're like, oh, yes, I kind of did. But what we do, when that comes, we redirect. We redirect it to God, and that is what Peter is doing. So he's going to correct the assumptions and interpretations. So he said what it isn't, and now he's going to say what it is. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Another thing you're going to see is that the apostles acknowledge their audience. The apostles acknowledge their audience. Not only are they correcting a particular error, they're acknowledging their people group, their uh, what we might call sociocultural status. They actually acknowledge that. Sometimes Christians today think, I don't need to know what group of people I'm talking to or what their background is or their culture. I don't need to know that. Um, actually, I think you do. Because it is very easy to be misunderstood, to not know where people are coming from. You have to know what core knowledge does this group have to which I am speaking. I don't want to assume they know things that they don't. And if they already know it, I don't have to spend time going over that a thousand times when I could move on to other things. So you'll notice there's a difference between when the apostles speak to a Jewish crowd immersed in the scriptures and a Greek or Gentile audience. I'm thinking Acts 17 in particular. You'll notice when they're speaking to a Bible bunch, okay, so people who know the Bible. By application, again, there's many, many non-believers in America who know the Bible. It's sort of like Israel at the time of Jesus. These are the religious people and they know the Bible. Never confuse a Christian with someone who knows the Bible. They're not the same thing. Christians will know the Bible, but not all people who know the Bible are Christians. We need to know the difference. And so Peter is acknowledging that this is not a Greek crowd. This is not a Gentile crowd, as Paul will acknowledge in Acts 17. But rather, this is a people who knows the Bible. And so notice how specific he is about the scriptures. This whole section is actually immersed with scripture. And some people can think, well, that's the method I should use when I'm talking to people who don't know the Bible at all. Uh-uh-uh. Look at Acts 17. You'll see there's a difference. But since this is a Bible bunch, this is a people who know the Bible, he is explicit in saying not just God, which Paul says in Acts 17, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he uses the language of servant with respect to Jesus, which is a theme in the Old Testament, and especially the book of Isaiah. So Peter does three things here in this section. 
glory is redirected from man to God. So he directed it initially away from himself. It's not our power, nor our godliness. Now he's redirecting it to God. Secondly, knowing he has a Jewish audience, conversant with the Old Testament, he specifies who this God is. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our forefathers. Notice the hour. The inclusive first-person plural. Notice he doesn't just say you. He makes a connection with the people he's speaking to. That's important. Because sometimes Christians, who never kind of get out beyond the church circle, they can kind of get this us-versus-them mentality. And though there is certainly a stark difference between somebody who's in Christ, born again of the Spirit of God, and somebody who's not, yet there are so many similarities between a believer and a non-believer, I mean, it, it really is ridiculous. But sometimes Christians get it in their mind, because I'm a Christian, I have nothing in common with non-believers. Oh, trust me, dear brother, dear sister, you've got like 99.99999% in common with the biggest pagan there is. I think we flatter ourselves in our own holiness far too much. The real difference between me and the world is not me, it's Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's the difference. And we don't want to swell up with pride because you do get an us versus them mentality. And then they're the enemy. I'm no longer looking to save them. I'm looking to put up a wall to protect myself from that. And that's what the Pharisees did, didn't they? They were using, misusing, the truth of God not to win the lost, but to keep the lost from being won. Actually, keep them out. And we have to be careful as followers of Jesus today that we don't get that mentality. So he connects with his audience. Our fathers. He's reaching out. Our fathers. The third thing he does here is he shows that God's glory is revealed in and through Jesus. This is important. God glorified his servant Jesus, Peter says. Because his audience already knows glory belongs to God. It belongs to Yahweh. But what do we say of Jesus? Who is he? And what Peter is doing is he's subtly moving the glory that belongs to God alone to Jesus in such a way where glory rightly belongs to Jesus while not in any way diminishing the glory that belongs to God alone. Now notice what he's doing. This is not a full-blown Nicene Trinitarianism where it's fully explaining how God can be one and yet three at the same time, same in nature and essence, but different in person and function. It's not well-developed, but the seeds of the truth of the Trinity are right here. Glory to God alone, and yet the servant, Jesus, the glory of God has been placed upon him. God glorified his servant, Jesus. This phrase, servant, again, I think is highlighted specifically in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, and chapter 52, 13 through 53, 12. We see over and over this emphasis on the suffering servant. Not just the idea of a servant, but the suffering servant. Because remember, it wasn't the idea that Yahweh had a special servant that was a stumbling block to the Jewish audience, but rather that the servant would suffer. Remember, I've said time and again, in their worldview, the Messiah does not suffer. Kings do not die. Kings don't get crucified as a common criminal on a cross. Kings don't come from Nazareth. Kings are not born in Bethlehem. Kings are not born in a stable. 
Kings are not born to a woman of no repute. And yet this man was. And so the passages in Isaiah, not just about the servant of Yahweh, but that the servant of Yahweh would suffer, became central to the Christian understanding of God in the Old Testament. Notice what Peter does next. And if we were a people-pleasing church, if we were a see, we would never say what Peter's saying. And I want you to take a look at what he's doing here at the end of verses 13 through the beginning of 15. He says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, here it comes, to rid the world of. This is extremely anti-cultural for American Christianity today. While it is good and right to as much as possible never be needlessly offensive to anybody church. We never want to needlessly offend anyone. There's two great errors people make with regard to this idea of offending people. There's some people who are afraid of offending everyone all the time about everything. <laughs> and if that's you, you're not going to tell people about the Jesus of the Bible. You're not going to tell them about the gospel. But then there's the people who, because they know the gospel is an offense, they have no problem offending people about everything <laughs> under the sun, including what teams they root for and uh, about what's going on in the culture and everything else. Those are two extremes disciples of Jesus must avoid. We never want to needlessly offend anyone. The apostle said this, Paul said this, I've determined to never place a stumbling block in front of somebody else. But the reason I do that is because I recognize that the cross itself is a stumbling block. And so what I don't want to do is have people stumbling over my offensive personality, the way I act out, the way I speak. I don't want to do that. If anything, I want to be loving, winsome, and attractive so that people view me as a trusted source of information about spiritual truth. And when I have opportunity, I will then share the only message that saves, which I know, apart from the Spirit of grace, will be a stumbling block to people. And so we have to be careful. We don't want to pick every possible thing outside the Bible to offend people about. That's not okay. That's not what Christians are called to do. And many Christians have been doing that for a very long time, and it would be a huge change of life. It would be instead of fitting Jesus into me, where I basically stay the same, but I throw a little dash of Jesus in, I change to fit Jesus. Amen? Amen. That's discipleship. Being formed to the image of Christ. Paul's language in Ephesians, growing up into Christ. Putting on Christ. That's what it means. Anything about me that doesn't look like Jesus needs to be changed. Time for a wardrobe change. Time for an extreme makeover. Jesus style. <laughs> yeah. We need to allow him to do that. And if we do that, if we are so careful not to needlessly offend anyone, we are then free and confident. And I would say with boldness to set forward that truth 
the only truth by which a sinner can ever be saved from eternal damnation, I can then set that forth in full confidence that I am doing so not out of hate, but out of love. See, I think many people, when they hear this message, it sounds like Peter hates these people. I mean, think about it. He is literally blaming them for the worst possible sins they could do. You did this. You are worse. And remember, to, to a pious Jewish audience, there's nothing worse than a, a pagan, than a Gentile, right? Uncircumcised, unkosher, outside the covenant of God. And by the way, oh, he just happens to be a governor, person in power. Oh, by the way, he was a governor of Judea, this region, so occupying our holy land. And he's the one who ultimately delivered Jesus up to death. And Peter says, and you are worse than he is. My gosh. How many people would want to go to a church where you're told, you are the most horrible, awful sinner there ever was? It's like, I'm finding a new church. I'm finding a church where it says, I'm not that bad. My sin's not that bad. Other people are really bad, but my sin's not that bad. That's not how Peter saw it. I want you to notice something else. Notice, too, Peter does not go through a laundry list of vices. This actually could have been a great time to say, and all of you have stolen, and you've lied, and you've committed adultery, and you've robbed people. And Notice he doesn't go through all behavior. And I think many people, including Christians, they're just content if people modify their behavior. Who cares if they go to hell? I just want them to change the way they're acting. Notice Peter goes past all the possible laundry lists and he goes straight to the heart of the matter. He does not point to sins, lowercase s, plural, but to capital S, sin, singular. In other words, for Peter and the Bible, all other sins are simply proof that we are sinners. All other sins are simply proof that we are sinners. And all sin deserves the judgment of God. Capital S, sin is the sin that gets you thrown into hell. It's the sin of rejecting the only one whom God has put forward for your salvation. That's capital S sin. Notice that's the opportunity he takes. Voting a certain way, not doing this with your body or your mind or all this. And again, we would say the outside, you live the inside dead. And the Bible says even a person who's a fine upstanding citizen, when they die and they stand before the judgment seat of God, the first thing he's going to ask him is, what did you do with my son? And that's the basis on which a person's ultimate destiny is decided. And Christians cannot be so hung up with outward behavior and our desire to see it modified that we no longer see that all that is is a symptom of the greater disease, which is sin. And so Peter takes opportunity not to go through every wrong thing they ever did in their life, but to go through the source of every sin you will ever commit, have committed, are committing in your life. The sin of rejecting God's saving work in Christ. Next, we see Peter is going to proclaim Christ. As he proclaims Christ, notice what is at the center. If you only have a moment with somebody. See, this is, this is a struggle. I think evangelism, in a sense, can get harder as you grow in the Lord and your knowledge of the Bible. Because when you first get saved, and let's say for the sake of argument, you don't come from a Christian background. When you first get saved, you know like this much. 
So if you're sitting next to somebody on a train, I remember I was in London, I was on the tube, and we were there for a mission strip, and we're going through London, which is my favorite city in the world, by the way. And we're going through, we're on the tube, and I, I felt this impression to witness to this person next to me. And that's not like my thing. I don't normally turn to people while they're busy in their papers and interrupt them and tell them about Jesus. But I, I felt compelled to do this, and I knew I'm in London, I'm on the tube, I'm never going to see this person again. So here's my opportunity. So I'm like, okay, the Lord wants me to share. I think I need to do it. I'm going to. Now here's the thing. What do I share? The problem is the more you learn, the more there is to sort of go through. And you're like, well, well what do I say? You know, do I say, hey, uh, looks like you're doing this sin right here or you're in this thing here. Do I do, I do this? Or, or, you know, I don't know if you should be dressed that way. I mean, it's like Christians can do all that kind of stuff. But really... What man's greatest need is the most simple thing in the world. And when Peter has a chance to proclaim this message, notice he starts with the bare essentials, what everyone must hear. What everyone must hear. And so for those of us who know so much about the Bible and the end times and everything else, we don't get so distracted with that, we forget the simple and first things which every sinner needs to hear. So Peter begins, first of all, by saying, Christ has risen from the dead. We must, we must preach the resurrection. He says, verse 15b, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. So the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, that Jesus, and that presupposes he really died. You probably have to explain why he died, right? He died for your sins. But God raised him again. God has power over life and death. That's important for people to know. If you don't think God has the power over life and death, you are going to live differently than a person who does. If you're not going through the rest of your life anxious and worried about death, which some philosophers have actually suggested, that's man's greatest angst. Their existential wrestling, that every person goes through life wrestling with death. And then that's what so much of the, the, the wellness culture that we are a part of, that by the way is a $3.7 trillion business, anti-aging and wellness. We spend $1 trillion alone on anti-aging and beauty products. And again, there's, there's the surface part, which is like, fine, whatever, knock yourself out, do, go to your, you know, mud bath, day spa, whatever, like caramel macchiato, whatever. Just do your thing, that's fine. But here's the problem, underneath, there's this fear of death and there's this desire to not lose our youth. That proverbial fountain of youth, everyone's looking for it. They all are, each in their own way. And so when we preach Christ, what we're also delivering people from is that anxiety about aging, that anxiety about being old, the anxiety about, well, I could get in a wreck, and if I went there, I could get this disease, and, and I could get... It delivers you from that. And if you don't experience resurrection life, then you are left fearing for your life. But if we're going to fear our, for our lives, we're never going to fear God. And so Peter begins with the resurrection from the dead. We must proclaim Christ. Crucified, yes, but risen. Second, he proclaims faith in his name. Verse 16, he says, and his name. Through faith in his name. Notice he repeats it for emphasis. Through his name. It's in him. All glory and honor and praise to him has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Once again, three times, yes, the faith which comes through him, has given him 
this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Trust in Jesus. I would actually make a strong case that the word faith is very misleading and confusing to people. The word faith fundamentally simply means trust. It comes from the Greek word pistuo, to trust. Faith in many people's mind has all kinds of strange connotations. Uh, no evidence, it's blind, there's no evidence whatsoever. Uh, for other people, um, faith is sort of just an assent to a proposition. Oh, you said Jesus, okay, sure. Check. I'll check that on a scantron. If I die and go to heaven, God gives me a test. I know it, but yes, he died. But trust is something else. To say I believe, I have faith that planes fly is one thing. Trust is getting on the plane with your life and trusting as it flies over the Atlantic to land in that beautiful city of London, I spoke, <laughs> that it'll get me there. Do you see the difference? Faith is not just, oh, I believe planes fly. Faith is I get on the plane. When we preach faith in Jesus, we're preaching trust. I don't know if you've ever done that little exercise. We, we did this in Sunday school in your group, and it's actually a great little thing, as long as you have somebody who's capable doing it with you. But there's a thing where they tell you to close your eyes, put your arms across your chest, and fall backwards and have somebody catch you. And they say, and that is an example of faith. You're, you're looking back, so you shouldn't just close your eyes, fall back if nobody's there. Like, oh, we haven't started yet. Ooh, thud. Like, no, you should look and make sure there's someone to catch you. That, that's the evidence side of Christianity. There is something you can look at. But after we've looked back and we see that Jesus is there, that Jesus saves, he lived, he died, he rose again, he's forgiving my sins, I live for him. I do eventually, at some point, have to turn, close my eyes, put my arms over, and fall back, trusting that he is going to catch me. And that is what faith in the New Testament is. We've got to get past these mistaken notions of faith that have nothing to do with how a person lives. If we say we have faith, but we actually don't trust God with our finances, we don't have faith. This is probably one of the greatest tests I think people face in, in American culture today is trusting God with our finances. Really. And if we say, oh, I believe God, but we actually don't trust God, with, like it, there's no demonstration. It's planes can fly. But I never, ever take a seat. We have to learn to practice getting on board with God. And that is what faith is. Next, Peter issues an invitation to receive Christ. So he's, he's preached the very essentials, and now he issues an invitation to receive Christ. And that's fourfold. First, he acknowledges that their sin was really sin. So after laying it down and telling them how horrible they are, that they've done the worst possible sin in the world, which is not all the behavioral things we think of, but it was rejecting Jesus. That is their cardinal sin. He says in verse 17, he extends grace. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. That is extremely generous, isn't it? When Jesus was on the cross with his arms outstretched, do you remember what he said? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you think to yourself, what in the world? Uh, they know darn well what they're doing. They just put nails in you. How many, they've done, how many people have they done that to? And they know what happens. 
They don't just stretch you out and bleed and you die miserably. They know exactly what they are doing. What does he mean? First of all, I think this is grace being extended. It's not that they didn't know, it's that they didn't ultimately know. They really didn't. They knew they were crucifying Jesus. They knew what his claims were. They didn't really understand. And so we see, even after this harsh conviction of their cardinal capital S sin, the sin of rejecting Jesus, he extends a hand of grace. But you did this in ignorance. Next, we see that God was sovereignly working through the Jews even though they rejected Jesus. That that was not outside God's plan. Verse 18. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Notice that. And this is, again, this is something that is comforting because when you think of your sin, you can think of how vile and horrible and awful it is, but somehow that it's like outside the plan of God. My sin is so bad, it disconnects me from God's purposes of grace. And Peter says, no. Even your sin, God was sovereign over to get you to this place this morning. Even your sin, not just the things you did right, all the bad things you've done, including the things you didn't even know were bad and you did them, and the things you knew they were wrong and you did them high-handedly anyway, but God sovereignly brought you here. That's what he's telling the Jews. As bad as what you have done is, it was not outside the plan of God, which means there's hope for you. But he also goes on to say that the only appropriate response, if you understand that, the only appropriate response is to repent of their wrong beliefs and actions regarding Jesus. In verse 19a, he says, repent therefore and be converted. And remember, repentance is both of the mind and of the heart. It means not only belief. Yes, we have to turn from wrong beliefs. Absolutely. Doctrine matters. Belief matters. But your actions matter too. It's not one or the other. People sometimes pit belief against actions as though they're opposing. They're not. Repentance is a complete turning around of an entire way of life, body, mind, and spirit. Living and thinking and acting one way to turning around, living and thinking and acting another. It means an entire change of life. You will have to now believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and your life is going to need to change. You need to start fitting into Jesus life, not fitting him into yours. Peter then goes on and he explains the blessings and benefits of God's grace in response to repentance. If you repent, what? What will happen? He says three things. First, in verse 19b, that your sins may be blotted out. Every sin you've ever done washed away today. We can't promise your sins will be washed away in the minds of the people that know you. But I can guarantee God will wash you and cleanse you this morning. Wash you and cleanse you. Make you white as snow. This is blessed forgiveness. Number two, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Verse 19c. He wants to refresh and restore his people. This is all aiming at one day him restoring all things, making all things new. But in preview of that, guess what? New creation begins with you. If anyone is in Christ, Paul said, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, new creation. You are a part of God's new creation. It begins with you. Yes, it's a thing coming, but it's a thing now present in the hearts of those who believe. 
we see that he may send Christ to you. We long for the return of Christ. Christ is coming again. And we can anticipate that that won't be in judgment for those who believe, but it'll be in reward and blessing and grace and perfection in his holy presence forever. Peter expounds Jesus as the Christ from the scriptures. In verse 20b, he says, Who was preached to you before? This is not a new religion. Christ was preached in the Old Testament. Verse 21a, Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. Christ is bodily absent, but spiritually present through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. We see that the ministry of Christ was predicted in the Old Testament in numerous ways. Again, his audience knows the Bible, so he's using more of the Bible than he would if it was a non-Jewish audience. He says, verse 21b, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. He begins with Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses truly said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. And Peter is saying, that is Jesus. From the very beginning of the Torah, Christ was being preached. And he goes on to say, and yes, verse 24, all the prophets, really, all the prophets, all the scriptures, from Samuel and those who follow, as many have spoken, have also foretold these days. That phrase, these days, may be a reference to the last days, which is spoken of all throughout the Old Testament, by the way, including that phrase is found even in the Torah itself. Christ is presented as the central foundation of salvation, not just in the New Testament, but always and forever from the beginning, yes, before the world was even made. Christ is the Lamb slain, the foundation and means by which sinners are saved. We see the promise of Christ in the scriptures is still available to these people who have crucified the Messiah. Verse 25 and 26 as we close. He says, You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, In your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Notice then that as Peter closes this sermon, there is an invitation. That though your sins be as scarlet, yet in Jesus they can be made white as snow. The question for you this morning is, do you believe this? That is the question to every disciple in every age. Do you believe this? It is not enough that your family believes this. Mom and dad can raise you. It is not enough. The question for you is, do you believe this? The question is not, does the rest of the church believe this? Do you believe this? Did the church in other times, in other ages, in other countries, did they believe? The question for us today, do you believe this? What we are beginning here is a plan of partnership with God in a life fitted in to Jesus. What we see is that our entire life is meant to be a life of faith in Jesus. Like Peter, every day this week, I want you to consciously think about how each day you may redirect all glory and praise away from yourself and into the God who made you 
and redeemed you with his own blood. When you reach the lost, remember how truly lost they are. They're not just lost in bad behavior. They're lost because they are dead in their spirits. They need the gospel. They don't understand that the greatest sin they have ever committed is not all the stuff on the outside the churchy people don't like. It is the sin of rejecting the only means of forgiving all the other ones, which is Christ and his cross. This is our message. This is our life. Let's welcome it today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your holy word. Lord, we thank you that it is through your word the world was formed and spoken into existence out of nothing. Lord, we thank you that the gospel is new creation. Once again, you are ex nihilo, out of nothing, out of the deadness of man's soul apart from God. You speak word through the gospel and a new life is born. Lord, we pray if anyone does not have life in God, if they've been separated not just from their bad behavior, but from the greatest all-encompassing source of every other sin, the sin of rejecting Jesus and not trusting in his name. We pray you would convict them of the reality of that sin, the magnitude of it. And we pray that as they feel that unbearable burden of rejecting the crucified Lord, we pray that they would hear a voice of unimaginable, undeserved, sweetest word of grace they've ever heard in their lives. That though crucified, yet he lives and loves, seeking to save all who are lost. And so, Lord, as we close in this time of praise and worship, may we respond to what you have said this morning. Soften our hearts. Enable us spiritually to be disciplined so that we are not distracted with what time it is, where we're going to go, what the weather's like. Something the pastor said I didn't like. He used that illustration of beauty products. That makes me angry. <laughs> Help us to see past all that and to hear the voice of Christ in the gospel being proclaimed. Ask for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.